Law, Policy, and Markets. I'm Alan Marks. Today, I'm joined by Linda Dakin Grimm, a senior consulting partner at Millbank and the author of the book, Dignity and Justice, Welcoming the Stranger at Our Border. Are we a country that believes that child born in Nogales, Arizona is worth investing in and the same child born in Nogales, Mexico is not? Let's get to it. Immigration is a complicated and controversial issue. Beyond the politics, economics, and laws, there are real people, many of them children, migrating all over the world. Some are escaping horrendous conditions or life-threatening dangers. Others are simply trying to make a better life for their families. Well over 50,000 unaccompanied children seek entry to the United States at our southern border each year. Who are they? And why are they so desperate to flee their home countries that they leave everything and everyone they know behind? What legal and moral responses should we have to them? Linda Dakin Grimm, my partner at Millbank for many years, now dedicates herself full-time to pro bono work, guiding immigrants through our arcane legal system. As she writes in her book, Dignity and Justice, Welcoming the Stranger at Our Border, Linda's work with unaccompanied children has changed her perspective and her life. Linda, thanks very much for taking the time to get together today. It's a pleasure to be here. We're going to talk in a minute about a lot of this, the real human stories of the people that you work with in the immigration field. But before we do, I just wanted to ask you a question. There's something in your book where you mentioned Pope Francis warning against the globalization of indifference from this culture of comfort that makes us insensitive to the cries of other people. When Pope Francis said that, what does that mean to you? To me, what it means is that there's kind of been a backlash against the idea of globalization, that, you know, we're all one world and, and are interrelated. And I think Pope Francis was ripping off of that to say that the problem isn't recognizing that we're all connected, but that we're indifferent to our brothers and sisters in other places. So I took it as, as a little bit of a clever rebuff of the critics of globalization. And how does that tie into immigration and the kind of work you're doing, especially for juvenile immigrants into the United States? One of the, the reactions that, that the, uh, I, I don't even like to use the term Republican anymore because I, I don't think that the anti-immigrant sentiment in this country is a Republican idea. I think most traditional Republicans actually favor broader immigration, but those on the right that are very anti immigrant have seized on, you know, this America first, America before everyone else. And other countries have similar movements where it's, we don't want to be interconnected. It's every, everyone for himself, that idea. And that concept, which underlies actually many of our longstanding immigration laws, is what enables us to turn suffering children away at the border and say, oh, they're just somebody else's problem. I didn't create this and I'm not going to fix it. Who are the unaccompanied minors who are coming to the United States from the southern border? At the moment, and it changes because there have been kids coming unaccompanied to the U.S. for decades. But at this moment in time, and really since the maybe 2010-ish forward, the kids have tended to come from three countries in what's called the Northern Triangle. So they're predominantly from Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. There are still kids coming unaccompanied from Mexico, 
And more recently, kids have been coming from Nicaragua as well. But that said, those are just the majority of kids. Kids come from, there are kids coming from Haiti that, that come to Central America and then come through the same pipeline through Mexico. That must be just a horribly dangerous journey for them. It is extraordinarily dangerous for any kid to undertake that, that journey. Five or six years ago, I was at the border in Nogales, Arizona, Mexico, and a man who worked in a you know migrant aid kind of place there told me that the typical advice to girls when they make the journey is to make sure you get a few morning after pills to bring with you because rape is part of the journey and there's just no way to avoid it. Uh, I've heard that kind of story from kids as well. So, you know, the, the trauma that's causing them to leave their country in the first place, combined with the trauma of the journey, must impact their state of mind, to say nothing of long-term emotional stability, but their state of mind in, in when they're entering the United States or trying to. Yeah, they're, they're definitely a dramatically traumatized population. Ironically, what the kids go through on their journey, though it often gets more attention in the press, is almost completely irrelevant to whether they're allowed to stay or not. Legally, you mean? Legally, yeah. And why is that? Because for these kids, there are really two ways, two roads to being able to stay. One is asylum. And asylum, without getting too detailed, but it is about proving that in your home life, you were persecuted. And the persecution was on account of one of five proved factors, race, religion, national origin, political opinion, or social group. So unless the child can show, or any asylee uh, applicant can show that they've been severely persecuted for one of those five reasons, which are all generalized not just to them, but you know, attacks on for their religion or their political views or, or particular groups, unless they can meet one of those five categories, even though they're generally suffering and you might say sympathetic refugees, they're not legally considered eligible for asylum in the States. Exactly. And those are very tight categories. You know, they're, they're very tight. We receive people all the time or, or they come to the border. We, we see people who have suffered terribly, who aren't eligible for asylum and they have no reason. They have no understanding about why they, they are or aren't. All they know is that they've suffered. The other basis that kids may be eligible for is called special immigrant juvenile status. And this is also a, a status that's in the law and has been for 30 years. But for that, you have to prove that one or both of your parents abandoned, abused, or neglected you in your home country. And there are some other requirements there as well. But you can see that neither of those standards, SIGES, special immigrant juvenile status, or asylum, have anything to do with the journey. They, they look exclusively at what your life was like before you started the journey. Well, let's look, let's look at a particular case. Let's look at an, an immigrant, Adan. I had the pleasure of working with you on that case for him. Started back in 2017 with a filing here in Los Angeles in the uh, state superior court for, you know, to start this legal road that he had and not to take the ending away. But now in 2021, he's got his green card and he's, he's here. Tell us a bit about that story. He's a remarkable kid. They're all remarkable in their, their own different ways. But he's a, he's a particularly smart and language-friendly kid. So he showed up in our offices, I'm sure you remember, at age nine. 
He'd been in the country for six months and he told us that he wanted to do this in English. And he proceeded to do so and talked everybody's ear off. His story was that his father had abandoned him at birth. His mother had left him in the care of a sister when he was too young to remember and had escaped terrible story of abuse herself, come to the U.S. to work and send back money, remittance money, which is quite common. And he was living in a pretty dangerous and deprived situation in his home country, El Salvador. So he came to try and reunite with his mom in 2017. He fit in the the categories that I mentioned about abandoned, abused, or neglected by one of his parents, and that was his father. So we applied for special immigrant juvenile status for him in the U.S. in 2017. 2017, Adan enters uh, a U.S. courtroom with some volunteer pro bono lawyers from Millbank by his side. And that, that was a kind case, right? Yes. Yeah. So, you know, and, and, and Milbank was brought into it by Kids in Need of Defense, KIND, which is a, a wonderful nonprofit legal services organization that focuses on juvenile immigrants, especially, you know, kids in situations like Adon's. So how does this process work? So we started with him in state court. Why are, why are we in state court for a federal immigration matter? That is a question that most lawyers ask, recognizing that immigration is a federal matter. The way that Congress established this status, special immigrant juvenile status, recognized that the federal immigration system is not set up with expertise in knowing when children are mistreated, when they're abandoned, abused, or neglected. The recognition of Congress was that the federal system and its employees don't have the expertise to make those decisions. So in their wisdom, Congress established a system that requires the immigrant juvenile to go into the state court system in whichever state he finds himself and file an action asking a state court judge who is expert in making decisions about children because our family matters are decided in the state court systems in this country. So what does the state court have to determine? So the child has to ask a state court judge to make findings that the child was abandoned, abused, or neglected in his home country, that reunification with that abusing parent isn't viable, and that it is in the child's best interest not to be sent back. The child that can get those findings from a state court judge can then take the findings and send the findings to the federal government and apply for special immigrant juvenile status. Makes sense in theory. So how well does that actually work? It sounds nice. I mean, it sounds like a logical system. As a practical matter, though, I have not met a child who has the wherewithal, much, I mean, even a child that grew up here and speaks English, to go and file a lawsuit in the state court system and, and you know, get these findings. So it's a very challenging process for an immigrant who isn't represented to, to even think about doing. And they're not entitled to representation because it's not a criminal matter, it's a civil matter. Immigrants in this country are never entitled to representation, even when they're in detention. We have observed the fiction 
that it's a civil matter. That's that's how we don't give the Miranda warning. You're entitled to a lawyer. And if you can't afford one, one will be appointed. That's how we avoid that. Uh, so, no, they're not entitled to a free lawyer, which leaves it up to largely to the pro bono bar to to go pursue these special and juvenile status type cases. And how do you how does how do a pro bono lawyers like you or organizations like kind connect with the juveniles that need this kind of assistance? Because I'm sure there's a lot of for every kid that's being helped, there's you know hundreds that aren't. Yeah, I will say that in that area, the federal system, I, I'm not going to say they're efficient, but they have a mechanism. When kids come to the border and ask for help, they may just say, I want asylum because that's the only word they know. But when they come asking for help, if they're under 18, they can only be held in the adult border stations for 48 hours. And then they must be turned over the Department of Homeland Security, which is in charge of the border, must turn the kids over to the Department of Health and Human Services, a different agency. And that agency houses the kids in juvenile-friendly facilities. When and if the kids are released from those juvenile facilities, they're given a list of, you know, here's a bunch of agencies that might or might not be able to help you. And so if you're released to a sponsor, an aunt, an uncle, uh, a parent, a brother in Los Angeles, you're much more likely to find an agency like Kids in Need of Defense or Betsetic or Catholic Charities or any number of others that will be able to connect you with a pro bono lawyer. If, on the other hand, you're in Harlingen, Texas, and you're going to be released to somebody in a small town in Texas, you have your list, but there's not really going to be any capacity. But they do give you a list of agencies, and then it's up to you and your sponsor to just dial over and over and, and look for a lawyer. So let's come back to Don's case. So the state court said, yes, you are eligible for this status. And then it gets tossed back to USCIS, to the federal immigration uh, system. And what are they looking at now that the state has made its determination? Well, the federal law is quite clear that the decision substantively about whether the, you know, what goes into those findings that I described about abandoned, abused, and neglected, not viable to reunify, and best interest, those are findings that the federal agencies are not qualified to make. So they are not allowed to go behind the order and try and re-adjudicate the questions. You know, like, did the, did the judge get this right? We really don't think the judge did. But during the Trump administration, that is precisely what they tried to do. You send in your application for SIGES with the state court judge's finding. And more often than not, you'd get back something called a request for evidence where USCIS would say, tell us a bit more about this. What was the evidence that the judge looked at? You know, we wanted an affidavit from counsel or better yet, just send us all the records that the judge looked at so we can see if he got it right. And that was against, against the law, essentially what they did. But if you got such a letter and you're an immigrant, you're, you have a free lawyer or you're paying somebody, you know, who, and, and it's, it's dicey to be able to afford this and you get a letter like that, your choice is either to comply or refuse to comply and then you'll be denied 
sieges, and then you have to sue and claim that the federal government is is acting uh, beyond its authority. And uh, very few immigrant kids have the wherewithal to do that. So in Adon's case, and in the case of many others, lawyers would try and thread the needle of giving them just enough information that they could you know, make the approval that they wanted to make without giving more than they were entitled to. Is USCIS uh, still doing that or is it, has the change in administration also changed their practices with respect to Sidges cases in particular? Yeah, I could not say that they have stopped that uniformly, but I have not received one of those letters since the administration changed. Another thing that has changed quite dramatically when the administration changed is that the law says that USCIS shall adjudicate the petition within 180 days. It doesn't say if they feel like it or, you know, if staffing permits. But during the Trump administration, I had SIGES applications that sat for two and three years with no, no action taken. And since the administration changed, that has also stopped. So Adan has been approved by the state of California's court for, for his status. That's gone back to the federal government. He's still not through the system yet. How does he get from there to a green card? Well, this is actually a, a critical issue that needs to be fixed by Congress that you're hinting at. Adan was approved for special immigrant juvenile status maybe in 2018 or 19, but he could not apply for a green card at that time because of the rather draconian numerical limits on immigrants that are part of U.S. law and have not been revisited in recent times. So our our law, because of the stalemate in Congress, is not allowing the number of immigrants into the country that we need. So we have people who are here just waiting in line to apply for a green card. And Adam sat in that line from about 2018 till 2020, end of 2020, beginning of 2021. And there's nothing he has to do while he's waiting in line, right? Except wait for the application to finally get processed because he's done his part. He's eligible to stay in the sense that he can't be deported. I suspect he can't leave the country because if he does, he can't get back in. He's too young to work, but if if any immigrant generally who uh, is in that situation, what what can they and can't they do? Why does it what what is what is happening while they're here? They're not being deported because they're legally allowed to be here, but they're not um, they don't have a green card yet. Or they don't they're not legal permanent residents. During the Trump administration, the Trump folks argued that they were deportable. Kids with approved special immigrant juvenile status could nevertheless be deported because they didn't have a green card. So during the Trump years, they were very much still in danger, even though they were approved special immigrant juveniles. So a number of agencies were fighting those situations in litigation, establishing that yes, being an approved special immigrant juvenile did give you the status, the standing to stay here in the US. Nobody tried to deport Adon when he was in the waiting line. So that was fortunate, but he was living with that, that risk. And for special immigrant juveniles who have been approved, but they're not, it's not their turn yet, they are not eligible for work permits. 
So Adon, you know, was 9, 10, 11, 12 years old. He was doing a great job being a middle school student, and that didn't matter. But for uh, older kids, you know, they can't get an after-school job. They can't contribute to help their parents. And it's very, very frustrating for them not to be able to work while they're waiting. So that's the situation. Now, not all of the work that you do in this area relates to juvenile immigrants. Let's talk about another case that you worked on that had a good result recently for a U.S. Marine, Hector. Tell us about him and his story. Oh, that was a really satisfying case that we did with public counsel here in Los Angeles. Hector was a green card holder in the U.S., lived most of his life here, though he was born in Mexico and served honorably as a U.S. Marine for a great many years. And he did so during a period of conflict, the Afghanistan wars. So he was eligible by virtue of doing that to become a citizen. As many veterans experience, when he was discharged honorably from the Marines, he was discharged with an alcohol problem, and he got a DUI and a driving under the influence charge, which many people don't know. But if you are a green card holder, you can be deported for infractions of the law, including things like a DUI. So Hector was deported to Mexico because of that. Ironically, he actually snuck back into the country and took advantage of the VA veteran uh, benefits to which he was entitled and did a rehab program and got sober and then was deported again back to Mexico. And he was all this time eligible to become a citizen, notwithstanding the DUI, which might have kept another person from naturalizing. So why hadn't Hector become a naturalized citizen? So during the Trump administration, he became aware that he could naturalize. And with some help, he began the process of applying and found himself in a kind of catch-22 situation where U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Service, which is the agency that would naturalize him, needed to do an interview. And they would schedule an interview for him in Los Angeles. And then Customs and Border Protection, which guards the borders, would not let him come into the country to do the interview. So the, the, the different agencies of the federal government had him in this sort of catch-22 position. It's like something out of Kafka. So how did you get Hector out of this bureaucratic trap? Ultimately, we sued in federal court. And about a week after we sued, we got a reach out from the agency saying that they were going to schedule him for his interview in Los Angeles and he would be paroled into the country to do the interview. That happened two weeks ago on a Friday. The interview was on a Thursday. And on Friday, he was sworn in by a former Milbank partner, Mark Scarzi, who's now a federal judge. It's a very emotional journey. Yeah, it was incredible. We have, we have a lot of these guys. And, you know, some of them had problems when they got out of the military, problems that natural born citizens have, too, after performing, you know, heroic, traumatic service. We have a lot of these guys who we have deported without much thought. And the current administration says that they're in the process of fixing the situation and, and we'll see what happens. So we've talked about asylum 
Uh, we've talked about special immigrant juvenile status. We've talked about some of the issues faced by veterans uh, who are eligible for naturalization. Taking a step back, writ large, the immigration system seems to many people, right or left, to be a bit broken. How would you fix it? Well, no one is really doing anything at the moment to fix it. I, I'm, I'm sad to say. I, I, I have great hopes for the current administration in writing the country, but even the initial proposal that the administration put out that is seems seems to be dead in Congress wasn't really about fixing the immigration system. It was more about fixing the fact that we have 10 to 12 million undocumented people living in the country and let's see if we can give them a path and and then let's also see if we can stop the lawlessness of the last four years. But to really fix the immigration system, it would require a Congress that we don't have, but a Congress who could work together and do some kind of meaningful substantive analysis about what the needs are of this country, economic, social, in every way going forward. Some kind of long-term look at what the needs are of the country. It, it's interesting to me. So there's, there's, there's a pivot, right? There's the, so many of the immigrants coming in on a humanitarian basis, whether it's asylum, refugees, otherwise, what's drawing them is their need to be here instead of someplace else where they're from, which is too dangerous. In contrast, economic immigration is often driven by the needs of the welcoming country or the, you know, in this case, United States. And I noticed recently, just a, a, a week or two ago, the United Kingdom issued a pretty broad statement welcoming with a, you know, arms open entrepreneurs, innovators, people with anybody, frankly, with an advanced degree from a reputable world university in hopes of jumpstarting, you know, parts of their economy. So there's also a need for uh, workers at all levels of the economy, uh, skilled and unskilled, especially in a case where, like most advanced countries, the United States has demographic shifts that are an aging population and a declining workforce and, and drop in workforce participation rates. So which, do you think a comprehensive immigration policy will address both those things, both the need for immigrants and the need to assist immigrants who are in need themselves? Yes, very well said, Alan. Yeah, that, that's what we need, both of those things. Obviously, every country wants to welcome the next great scientist, technical person, medical doctor, etc. But I think economic analysis would show that we, we do have needs at every level of the workforce. But that's not the end of the analysis. The rest of the analysis is we have to look you know, long and hard at each other and decide who we are as a country. Are we a country that believes that you know, a child born in Nogales, Arizona, is worth investing in and the same child born in Nogales, Mexico is not? Are we a country that really believes that people born here are better than other people or you know that we we owe to these people but across the line we don't owe we also need to look deeply at our own history and see where we as a country have taken actions that have contributed to not caused but contributed to the dreadful situations that people are fleeing from we need to do all of this so that we can revise both aspects of our immigration welcome. 
So for you personally, I mean, decades as a big ticket litigator for you know global corporations, uh, reinsurance companies, and so forth, and now you've focused entirely on assisting immigrants navigate our legal system. You've taken uh, a, a degree, an advanced degree in theology. I know your faith informs this quite a bit. How should our laws reflect compassion and empathy and welcoming the stranger? And what should we do when they don't? Oh, that's a great question, Alan. That's a hard question. I do not want to try and impose my faith on anyone else. I'd rather live my faith. And my faith tells me that we need to welcome the stranger. From my study of other faith traditions, I'd be hard-pressed to identify a faith tradition that at its root doesn't have a similar narrative. What should we do when people don't want to welcome the stranger? Work around them. I, I guess uh, the last few years have made me simultaneously more interested in talking to people who have a different view and more mystified about the ability of some people to just ignore what's going on in the world and ignore the suffering of others. In terms of communicating with people, the only potential way that I can see of talking to those people is in storytelling. Because I think that, you know, deep inside every human is a, a humanity and a, a desire to be loved and loving. And we can relate to other people's stories, even when they don't fit the narrative we've bought into. So that's why I, I try and tell stories in the book. I think it's a, a beautiful way of doing it because it, it, so much of the antipathy toward immigrants historically, uh, I, I don't, I don't want to just focus on the present moment or just in, even in the United States, but so much of the antipathy to it comes from fear, however that's motivated. And then it, that becomes either indifference or active hostility to some or all immigrants. And it's fear of generalized groups. It's not fear of necessarily any particular person. And the stories individualize each immigrant. And in doing so, make it easier for us, as, as, as you say in your book, to see the dignity of each other person, even the divinity of each other person, and then treat them accordingly. Because that inescapably leads to empathy, at least curiosity, and maybe even a desire to, relieve, you know, to alleviate suffering and to be welcoming. I agree. I, I think even in the people that I disagree with the most or the people that make me the most angry or frustrated, there is that spark. There's that spark of divinity. And each of those people is somebody's son or daughter and have children and and respond with kindness to to other people in specific situations. And, and often people that are, you know, bought into that narrative who, you know, maybe hate immigrants in an abstract kind of way have exceptions for their buddy, you know, Joe at the market or, you know, somebody they happen to know personally. So I've just become more and more convinced that individual stories uh, is, is probably the only way to, to reach and change hearts and minds. When you think about it and you step back, I mean, you've already helped more than 75 immigrants successfully through the system and been responsible for teaching lawyers and training others and for who've helped many, many more immigrants navigate it. 
and I know you've also advocated for change in a lot of the processes and the laws. What makes you the most hopeful about the next 10 years, notwithstanding the, you know, the, the political challenges, but what makes you the most hopeful? What makes me the most hopeful is the resiliency, enthusiasm, goofiness, joy that I see in both the kids that, that I've represented and worked with, the immigrant kids, and in the young people who work with me on their behalf. And there, I mean, high school kids, your daughter was one of them, uh, high school kids, college kids, the summer associates at Millbank, who each year for the last five years have gotten involved in a team. These people are our future. And that gives me hope. I mean, I, I have a thousand stories of, of young people who are astonished that the system is the way that it is and really are intent on making it change. And that makes me think that maybe we will get through this really fraught time. You, know, so you mentioned my daughter assisting on one of these. It was, uh, I have on my desk a photograph from uh, downtown LA Superior Court of you with my daughter and the immigrant we were helping, a child named Monica. And I mean, I know from the declarations how horrible her story was. And to see the smiles on their faces in that picture a mile wide when they got the Sidges ruling, I mean, it was just remarkable. Monica, like Adon, she's just a little bit behind him in line. She's gone in now for her biometrics. And the next thing that she should get is her green card. She's, she's right behind Adon. So she's almost finished as well. And she's also now... 14 and a really smart girl who will contribute greatly to this country. I mean, it, that's where the hope is. Yeah. I, I, I remember too, that her elementary school gave her the citizenship award, which I thought was poetically just apt. It's fantastic, <laughs> isn't it? Well, Linda, thank you for all of the good work that you're doing, both for the individuals and to change the system. And it's a pleasure to have you as a partner. Thanks, Alan. It's it's my pleasure, and I am so grateful to Millbank for letting me do this work under the Millbank roof. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Law, Policy, and Markets, Millbank Conversations. Follow us on your favorite podcast platform and learn more at millbank.com.